Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey everyone, John Wertheim here. It's this week's Sports Illustrated Tennis Podcast. Hope everyone is doing well. No pro tennis events this week, but a lot of scrambling behind the scenes trying to get a schedule for 2021 as Corona continues its blaze through the draw or the calendar, uh, as it were. Right now, it looks like the Australian Open is going to start on February 8th. That's three weeks later than usual to uh, account for a quarantine. Remains to be seen. It looks like Indian Wells, unfortunately, will... uh, cancel for 2021 or at least be postponed perhaps until the fall. Miami is a question mark. We'll uh, pass on more news when we have it. Maybe there'll be more clarity by the time you listen to this podcast. Uh, meanwhile, today, uh, two great guests, very different uh, in terms of the significant age gap here, but I suspect uh, they would they would rather like each other. Uh, first guest, Dick Gould, who was the men's coach at Stanford for almost 40 years. Stanford won 17 NCAA titles under Coach Gould. 50 of his players were all Americans. He, of course, coached a uh, curly-haired kid from Long Island, John McEnroe. We talk a bit about that, uh, a bit about the state of college tennis. Um, Dick Gould is sort of the the John Wooden figure who didn't just win a lot, but also is a a paragon of of virtue. And uh, the next person to say something ill of him will be the first. I would submit it's a glaring omission. He's not in the International Tennis Hall of Fame, but this is a good conversation. We talk a lot, talk about McEnroe, talk about uh, international players in college tennis. We talk a bit about head injuries as he is the vice chairman of a nonprofit, uh, Teach AIDS, which creates health ed technology and is paying special attention to head injuries. Uh, good conversation. So uh, here is Dick Gould, and then after him, we talk to Brandon Nakashima, who we will intro in between segments. So here's Coach Gould. How are you doing? How, how have you? I feel like everyone. Uh, the first question we all ask is that. I mean, how, how's your 2020? <laughs> it's almost over. Actually, it's been good so far. And uh, uh, a couple of my guys, former guys, have been affected a little bit with COVID, but uh, so far, everyone survived it. And 
it's just the family's good and that's that's the main thing for me of course and uh so all's, all's good but it's really affected i i, I working and i stopped stanford three years ago i've been working on concussion education for a nonprofit, and uh and for the usopc and youth football and a little bit with the ncaa and stuff and it just uh that's a full-time job. You can't go into the office. Fortunately, everything we do is on Zoom. So if it weren't for Zoom, John, we complain about it, but where the hell would we be, you know? I'm really with you. Um, no, you're, it's, it's allowed this economy to, uh, to keep functioning at some level. Um, but I, I want to ask you about that, especially, uh, well, we can, I, I don't want to jump too far ahead, but I don't know if you, you saw the piece in the LA Times yesterday about the, uh, the Stanford volleyball player and, and the... Yeah. Yeah, I did. I did see that. And actually, my granddaughter was director of operations of volleyball for eight years. And that was during that time. So there's two sides to every story, you know, but it was a uh, concussions are, are not uncommon in volleyball. You know, you, you go up to the spike and the ball gets between your hands or you get hit in the head. And uh, it, it's it, our first partner with the USOPC was artistic swimming, synchronized swimming, believe it or not. Uh, oh. They have a lot of concussions in that and everyone thinks football, but it's it's. It's just amazing and very predominant in other sports. Um, we'll talk about. Uh, I, I can only think of one. I can only think of one instance offhand in tennis, but uh, well, there are two I can remember. Well, we had a couple. We were doing a story wall where people talk about the concussion stories, how they got them, whatever. Most of them are athletes, about half high school, half college, and we have a couple of uh, tennis stories in there. Kids got hit in the head with a ball, and and people are more susceptible some than others. It's, and it just, uh, I think James Blake, of course, is one. But then there's a gal in the locker room who slipped and fell, much to the dismay of the, the lawyers for the USTA. Oh, I didn't uh, think Canadian. of that. Yeah, well, I, I, I remember an Azarenka once at the US Open, but I, I guess you're right. Yeah, exactly. There, were, there was an eight-figure settlement, uh, but that's not, not on the court. Anyway. Um, I wish I could blame mine on something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I wanted to... Um, I mean, at some level, I, I want to talk college tennis, but I also, I'm just curious, I, I, I want to hear more about you. I mean, I, I feel like everyone knows, uh, you know, everyone knows Dick Gould, Stanford coach for more than 40 years. It occurs to me. Um, <laughs> what do you mean? Dick Gould, little man. That's what you mean. Come on, John. You are the, uh, <laughs> modesty aside, you are often described, um, and this is, this is someone who grew up in my hometown, so it's near and dear to me. You were, you were the, the John Wooden of college tennis. Um, and some of that is about, longevity and titles and wins and losses and some of this is about the lessons you imparted on uh, players who I'm sure you know speak glowingly of you but I, I'm just curious I, I don't know anything I, I was telling someone this recently I said I, I were you a player how did you get into this crazy sport I, I really don't know much about you pre-Stanford how did you uh how'd you come to tennis well it's interesting I, I, I'm a farm boy and my folks didn't play at all from Southern California my dad's a farm and and uh, I had a horse to ride all the time and a young kid, and, and my mom said, well, you're going to take a tennis lesson. I said, I'm not going to wear those little white freaking shorts downtown and instead of my jeans and Levi's. What are you talking about? I said, do you want to ride your horses somewhere? I said, yeah. Well, you're going to take a lesson. And you may remember a gal, uh, Nancy Chafee Kiner, Mary, Mary Ralph Kiner. Uh, she was maybe top 10 in the world, and her dad was my was the guy who gave me the lesson. He made everything I did equate with another sport. It was, uh, you step into the punch like a ball, like Rocky Marciano steps in the punch. You watch the ball coming out of the, uh, off the racket like Ralph Kiner watches coming out of the pitcher's hand. Everything, all of a sudden, it wasn't a sissy sport. It was a big thing. And, and he made hitting a ball really exciting. And uh, I always worked in the summer, so I didn't play a lot of tournaments. But I, I went to Stanford and played on the team there and uh, got pretty good by my last year. And, and uh in those days, all Americans were sparse. I was, but I was 
I, I got fairly good, but there was no circuit, you know, and, right. and so you, you go out and you play shamatrism and don't do anything and nothing to show for it. And I had a job teaching, I'd offer, and I, I took that job in high school and, and, and that was my vocation coaching and uh, absolutely loved it. And it's been glorious. I, you, you'd appreciate my guys. I, I'm doing a book, uh, not on Stanford tennis, John, but on, uh, and you've written, you understand this, uh, really on, on leadership, uh, on coaching in general. And, and it's, I have 200 guys who have coached who are still alive. Yeah. And I sent uh, any questions out to every one of them. And their essay questions, you know, it took two hours at least to respond to this thing right. I had 162 responses, 75% over that. Wow. And uh, then I took those questions and put them into chapters and, uh, and built, built my chapters and what I said around the quotes of the players on things like the importance of trust, you know, in, in, uh, in each other, of you and the coach, uh, the coach and you. Uh, did we have a culture? Uh, define it. Uh, how do we deal with egos? Which, of course, in any sport at that level, you're going to have at the highest level, you're going to have a lot of those. It's, it's, it's fascinating. So it's at a former player's mind now who's a writer and he's kind of brushing it up for me and sending out some literary, if you know any agents that might be interested in a book that's uh, transcends tennis, it's, it's a pretty good primer for, uh, it's not, this is how I, this is how I did it. One, two, three, four, five, the keys to secret leadership, you know, uh, right. it's more, it's all comes from my players. It's really an interesting perspective and it, it's, uh, it was over a 40 year span. It's a pretty interesting book. It's going to be good. Uh, I, I would, off with offline i'd be happy to uh i'll be happy to introduce you to some agents tell, tell me what, what did you learn reading all those response i mean i imagine that's over over 40 years right i mean those are all, all the players you coach right yeah well 100 yeah from the very yeah. first guy the guys that uh when i you know the one thing i learned that uh one of the first things i learned is a goal that your players can't conceive of and I come in rah rah yeah we can win a national we're going to win a national championship. I told everyone that, and then they laughed at me. And one of the guys quotes in here said, "I remember Coach, one of our first team meetings. Uh, we're sitting there and we're out there getting us getting our rays and getting tan and ready for a little hit and giggle hit around at practice. And you said something about we're going to win a national championship. And we looked at you and we just rolled our eyes. Said Coach, that's never going to happen here, Sam. It was just too far out there for anyone to believe. And 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 you know you can't your goal, my goal has to be something that other people." That our team has to understand, our business team, whatever it is. And if they don't understand it, it's a futile attempt to try to get them to believe it. <laughs> so as we got a little better, it became more relevant. Of course, open tennis happened. A lot of things happened. The stars were aligned pretty well. How did you, um, how did you define your job? And also, in college tennis, you can obviously coach during the matches, unlike, uh, you know, un unlike the ATP Tour. Um, how much coaching did you do when the ball was in play? Well, uh, that's a great question. I, I can't watch tennis anymore. I, I'm bored by it, very, very frankly. And uh, the, the reason for that, I can watch it artistically and I can appreciate uh, an Adal Federer type match or how Joker, I can see that. But uh, I got my jollies coaching and, and you're actually playing the match. And as I got more confidence and involved with a, a philosophy of what I wanted, a style of play I wanted, I got more confidence and, and saw the results of it and, see, and saw it working. Uh, I became more and more, more and more outgoing in what I said, and my guys would hate it. I, I would first year and a half, they oh God, here comes coach again. You know, my ear full. I want to concentrate in the match. I want to win this point. What is he, the hell is he going to tell me now? And it just, uh, but really, you're calling balls and strikes from the dugout, you know, and you don't know for sure what's going to work or not, and uh, but you know what your player can do, and 
and John, you just learned you just learned something new in your forehand. And yet, are you going to try it on match point when everything's at stake? No. But I have, if I have confidence, you can do it, or I feel it's got to. You got to try it anyway. Have nothing to lose. I'm going to insist upon it. I'm say, John, here's what I want you to do. Here's what I want to serve. Uh, kick it up the back and serve it in tight to the forehand. Uh, crowd the line a little more in return. Get in behind this return. Whatever it was, I became really vocal in what I was telling these guys to do. Drive them crazy. But then a year and a half later, I'd look and I'd start to say something to him, and they were doing it before I could get it out of my mouth. And, uh, and, and, it, and it worked. And, and the more it worked, the more they believed in it. So it was uh, uh, playing the matches like that took the excitement out of watching tennis away from me. And I, I, don't, I don't play. I might have six days a week with tennis. I'm not going to take my seventh day. I'm going to watch a football game or something. I'm not going to go out and play an hour of tennis. So, so uh, I haven't really played much in the last 30, 40 years. Maybe a set of mixed doubles social and a trip to Wimbledon with a group or something like that where I had to, but not really much otherwise. Um, some, some coaches say, you know, these, these teams are like, are like children, they're like sons and, and others uh, don't look at them that way at all. But do, do you have one, was there one year, one vintage, one, one team that was extra special? Well, they're all special, John, for different reasons. Right. Uh, you know, it's like a family, you know, you, how many, you have, the, you have one senior boy or girl, yeah, but they're both different. They're both very different, right? Sure. I mean, same genes, everything else. Well, I got a team with a greater array of genes yet and they're very very different and and you like guys you know there's always the guy who's the challenge and the and the guy that you know you got to figure out what button well you have to figure out what button to push on all of them but the guy that that really challenges all the time what am i going to do to get through this guy and, and that becomes a great challenge for you uh and you might and that a lot of times it becomes your favorite guy uh you know someone that you didn't have much respect for maybe perhaps uh, someone who evolved, you saw grow, you know, your kid, how seriously, if they were in school now, how many hours a day do you see your senior in high school the last couple of years? A couple hours, maybe a dinner, uh, family dinner, or maybe oh, a little bit after dinner. Uh, they want to go to the room and put their heads on and, right. and you don't see them again. Well, I get them three, four hours, three hours, four, day, four hours, uh, six days a week, and I get them hopefully for four years. That's a lot of time. And they're going through all kinds of things at those times. They're going through breakups and family breakups and uh, all, all kinds of things are happening behind the scenes. And you got to keep them focused when they walk into that, that living room of yours surrounded by those 10 foot fences. They're another world and they got to find some pleasure and joy and escaping. And, and so it's, it's a, it's a challenge, but that's a, a particular guy or player. I, I could go on and say something special about every one of the 200. Yeah. I mean, I guess I was more, was, was there one team that, everything came together or we weren't that's, picked to that's do great. as well as we thought. Was there one year that sticks out to you? Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm going to give you two occasions of, of teams I really enjoyed, but very different teams. First one was 78. And that was when John McEnroe came in, having been in the semis of Wimbledon, but on that team was the defending NCAA champion, Matt Mitchell, a guy who was a long time adversary, a year older from, the same Northern California, Billy Mays, who had back ended up beating in the semis of, of the NCAAs in three sets. Uh, and a fourth guy from LA who ended up being ranked 12th in college tennis that year. So we had three, four really good players, plus a guy down at fighting for six, the guy who became top one in the world, another guy top 40 in the world and a couple of years later. Uh, that team was a great team of tremendous competitors, but unbelievable egos. And the challenges that team presented were, were unreal. And it was undefeated, one of only three undefeated teams I had. 
But 20 years later, fast forward to a situation where I have the Bryan brothers, a guy named Paul Goldstein, you probably know, a great guy, and a guy who was a, uh, an outstanding player, Ryan Walters, a uh, great junior player and won the All-American College Tournament, which is big for college tennis the year before in the fall. Uh, five and six for a guy named Jeff Abrams, who's our sports medical director at Stanford now. Oh, wow. And a guy named Alex Kim won the Inns a, a couple of years later. Uh, and, and that team, John, whereas I had the other team, I had to figure out a lineup. When I gave Mac the like, fall off, first time ever, and I'd given a player all of the year off, a fall off. But he played in Bill Reardon's circuit in the spring while he's at Trinity School and had a lot of tennis there with Passerell and Ash and Smith guys like that, that caliber playing those events. He was able to get in the qualifying at Wimbledon. He went to Wimbledon in the qualifying and kept on winning. So he had to drop out of the junior event the second week and uh, ended up getting the semis. And he kept playing all summer long. He never took a week off. So right. he comes to Stanford after the U.S. Open. I said, John, I don't want to see it in January. Well, in fairness, I knew he wasn't a, a practice player in the sense of the word that you and I, you know, repetition, you same basketball, off, uh, throw him out of bounds, the same offense, whatever it might be, repetition, repetition, repetition. John's not that kind of guy. He was, a, an, uh, he was an artist. He was a magician. He had his own way, his own style. I didn't understand it. I couldn't coach it. Uh, and the best thing I could do was let him get that fall off because it, I could get together with the rest of the team, get them going. And he came back out in January. And I didn't make a decision he was going to play. And so I had Mac and Billy and uh, Matt play around Robin. Well, of course, they're all going to have one and one. I'm going to have to make the decision anyway. But I didn't want to make that decision. I didn't want to dump on anybody. Right. So uh, Mac won, beat both players in three sets. And uh, Billy Mays beat Matt in three sets. And then Matt kind of tanked to Perry Wright. And so he started the season of four as defending champion. And, uh, and, and these guys were great competitors and they're still close today, but it's a different kind of closeness and, and they would fight each other in the court even. Uh, but then fast forward, same situation 20 years later, I sit these guys down in the court. I say, guys, I don't know what we're going to do. We got the indoors next week. Uh, we got up here. We're going to do, we can play each other positions I don't really like that say no 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 coach we don't play you you pick well we had 24 match dual matches on our schedule and I realized that that night I was looking at him and I said my associate coach John Whitting I said Whit why don't we take these guys and each of them let's propose that we each of them play number six number one six times number two six times three six times and four six times and you all and I will sit down we'll make out the schedule now in early February that's going to last through March through through May up to the NCAAs. And let's propose that to them. And they said, coach, that's great. And so these guys had no ego on this team amongst each other, total trust in each other. Okay. And, uh, and every one of them played number four as many times as they played one, two, or three. Uh, and I told them, it, it, two months from now, you might be playing number one right now and feel you're the best player on the team, but two months from now, you might be playing equivalent to number four position. But I've committed to play you one. Can you handle that? And can you guys who are not playing one in that situation handle reverse? And, and they bought into it. That team lost two singles matches all year. I think both those uh, losses were redeemed, redeemed later in the season in individual tournaments. And we lost one doubles point. That's unheard of. And, and, and you talk about teams with no conflict. In, in, and Jeff Abrams and Alex Kim alternated number five every other match. And it just... 
to stay with that schedule and commit to it and stay with it and have no disrespect of each other, or no coach, no lobbying coach. I'm just playing really well now. I got to play one. They, they stuck with it. It was incredible. That's, uh, we, we don't often see democracy like that. In, uh, in a no, no, you don't. I told Whit, I said, appreciate this, Whit. I mean, you're starting your coaching career. I mean, this will never happen again. It just is unheard of. And uh, great players, big egos, confidence in themselves, but not – but team was always first. It was unbelievable. You know, you know that sounds suspiciously like a Stanford startup where you don't have a corporate hierarchy and uh, <laughs> you know the, the engineer right. has the same office as the CEO. Uh, that's a great story. I, I we mean, both, you, know, you can't tell one without the other because there are two great teams. If they played each other, I don't know which team would win. Uh, there were two great teams, but they're they're different situations. You know, so one story kind of makes the other one. I. Um, I suspect you're, you're, uh, every time you speak in public, you probably get asked about McEnroe. Um, but I, I, I <laughs> you mean every cocktail party or every time in public? Yes. <laughs> uh, he's, he's not helping you by, uh, by staying relevant. I mean, there's as much curiosity about McEnroe uh, in, in 2020 as there probably was in 1980. But um, did, did you, I mean, obviously it, it sounds as though you, you knew this was, uh, you know, a singular guy and there was a unique set of buttons to push. Did you foresee the next five years? I mean, he, you know, I, I think people forget this. I mean, he was already, I mean, I, didn't he already get to the Wimbledon semis before he even came to campus? Yes, he did. In fact, uh, I think, as I recall, at least I tell the story. I'm not quite sure it happened exactly this way, but I got a call from the airport. In those days, you could legally pick them up and transport them to campus. He says, Coach, it's Mac. And I kind of sit silent for a minute. says, Hey, John, how are you? I'm at the airport. Oh, yeah, which one? San Francisco. I need a ride to campus. Can you pick me up? I said, John, I give your scholarship away. I thought you turned pro. <laughs> so we got a laugh out of that. Actually, I took him right to Barry McKay's tournament, and, and uh, straight there he was playing that night, right, that, right to the tournament. So. Yeah. Never mind the scholarship. The, the notion of John McEnroe waiting for an hour for someone to drive up from the peninsula to pick him up at uh, SFO is a good story. Um, well, you know, I, I, I must say, in fairness, John was, he was, uh, well, first of all, he was one of the greatest competitors I've ever, I ever, I've ever seen, you know, the opportunity to work with. Uh, and I've had a lot of them, but this guy could, under pressure, and I can give you examples, could come up with a shot that no one else could under pressure in the situation. Uh, but, but, you know, you have to really... Uh, he he was one of the most fun players I've ever been around. I really enjoyed John and probably one of the greatest team players I've ever seen. If you look at the Davis cup, I don't think he ever turned down, no matter how tired he was. Sure. I don't think he ever turned down the chance to represent the country, his what, country. What do, what do you mean fun? Just, he's just fun. He's a fun loving guy. And, and uh, you know, you could kind of tease him. He'll tease you back. He's uh he's he's very shy in a lot of ways uh his roommate is there but there's a sign to you usually an athlete doesn't have an athlete as a roommate mm -hmm. and certainly no tennis player would have a tennis player as a, as a roommate well john just happened to have this great big freaking discus thrower as a roommate and i, I just i, I just kind of laughed myself okay now john's going to be kept in, in, in line with this guy yeah. but we go to play our first match that he played at stanford it was the team indoor championship in madison wisconsin and john every match the four days we played there as soon as his match ended he'd be the first he'd be meet at the court to either console or congratulate his teammate he was a tremendous team player. He really, really cared about the team. 
Uh, I just have so much respect for him and, and how he handled college tennis. As the year went on, you know, we didn't have umpires most of our matches. The players called their own lines in those days. And, uh, and John, I can't say he was an angel, but John was actually really a model pretty much of, of behavior that whole year. But as the year went on, you could just sense him getting a little bit more uptight, a little more uptight, the pressure of having to win the, the NCAAs or feeling he should. Uh, his counterparts, Elliot Telcher was a great player. He had a, there were a lot of, there was a lot of competition in college tennis in those days, early days of the Open. And, and, uh, and he was no lead pipe since. Uh, he lost a couple matches during the year. And uh, as a matter of fact, and, and he just got tighter and tighter. In our last home match of the year, we were playing Pepperdine. They had a South African, you may remember, Eddie Edwards. Good player and really a nice guy. The nicest guy you would ever meet. You take Eddie Edwards home to your daughter. And, uh, and, and for some reason, Mac, he was uptight anyway. It was our last home match of the year, and he got uptight. And he got upset with Eddie, which you, 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 knowing Eddie, that could not happen. But he did. Right. Uh, and that was the first time I'd really seen him lose it in a match. And then we go in the Incibles, and he was really wound up. And we had, you know, these linesmen those days were the physics professor who played lunchtime tennis. Exactly. You know, just people at the kind of local country club volunteering, uh, not professional linesmen as we have nowadays in college tennis and everywhere else. Uh, and, and they make mistakes. And of course, John has great eyes, he could never make a mistake in his eyes. So uh, right off the bat, he started that, uh, started the team event there and, and was on a uh, behind the eight ball. And of course the crowd would pick on him as a favorite and, and uh, he didn't react well to it. And I, I actually had a decision to make. Uh, I, I couldn't really pull him out of the team, not that I would have, but the other guys were counting on him and it wouldn't be fair to them. And, and so we let it go and let it go. and. Then we get the individual tournament, I, and I have to make a decision. Do I leave him in or take him out? And uh, I say, you know, I said to myself, like, my convincing thing was, in my mind, was that he'd done so much of his, for us during the year, given so much of himself, even to come to college for this year and to Stanford, that I had to go with him. And uh, it wasn't a smooth ride, but he got through it okay and played one of the greatest finals I've ever seen uh, against John Sadry at North Carolina State. That was the, that was the year he won the uh... – the year, that was a one-year school when he won the employees, yeah. And that wasn't, that wasn't a lock. I mean, he had some Elliot Tulcher, John Sadry. The Sadry match, I think, had three service breaks. Uh, two of them were in one set. It was 7-6, seven, 7-6, six, seven, six, five, seven, seven, six, and 95-degree humidity and 95 degrees. And Mack had played – he'd played 18 matches in 18 matches because he played three a day in the early rounds. 18 matches after the team event, 18 matches in like uh, six days. And the guy was just exhausted. Uh, what he did in that thing, uh, it was – and then you get the finals in three out of five sets. It was unbelievable. You're playing best of five. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm marveling at how you're uh, remembering these scores and names and circumstances. That really well, – I had to look some – I had to look some up because of the book – for the book. But it, I, I fudged a little bit, but John, but uh, those are accurate so far. What, what – as you see it now, what, what sort of is the status of college tennis? I mean, where do you see this? Uh, where do you see things standing right now? Well, I, I, I think the state of college athletics, you've written on a lot yourself. I think uh, it's, it's a, we have a non-sustainable model in college athletics in general right now. It's, it's uh, you know, look at the Knight Commission report of a couple of days ago, and, and then you see uh, Mark uh, Emmert's uh, reaction to it. It's bull. We mess ourselves possible. 
Uh, Stanford just cut 11 sports a couple of months ago. Uh, unheard of at Stanford. Um, and that was before COVID had really hit. Now, of course, that bill is really running up because you, all the precautions you have to take. But it just, uh, there have been over 60 programs dropped about half, about equally, amazingly to me, about equal between men and women in college tennis this year, Division One, Two, and Three, uh, a little over 60. Um, it, it just, it, it, swimming programs getting dropped like the Olympic sports are taking a beating. And, and you wonder what's going to happen to the US OPC. They really count on the Olympic development, gymnastics. Uh, it's not just club sport based, it's gymnastics, it's tennis, it's uh, swimming, whatever you have. And, and swimming is getting a lot of, is getting hammered, not just tennis. And I, I think that uh, to answer your question specifically, I think we're a little late coming to the realization that if we want our sport to survive, we have to be sure it's self-sufficient. And I was lucky because when I retired from coaching, I had 14 years as, as, uh, as a director of tennis. And that job was, I was able to complete our endowment for men's tennis. So my director of tennis position, my coach, our coaching position had benefits, our assistant coaching position, all of our scholarships were about 75,000 75, a year at Stanford. And a surplus from those went into all of our operating budget. And we have a good maintenance endowment bringing in over 100,000 a year. And when I left Stanford, at least when I left, it was 100% endowed, so you couldn't take it away. Right. So I think that's and 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 the sports now wrestling as an example at Stanford and then men's volleyball are working hard to increase their endowment. But I mean, it's probably too little too late and they can't get those two sports back without an, an imbalanced title nine further imbalanced title nine. So it, it's just a really tough thing for college sports right now. If you're not a football team, basketball team, men or women or coach of such. How I mean, as long as you brought it up, how, how does Stanford of all places I don't know what the $25 billion, $30 billion endowment. How do they cut this many sports? Luckily, as you say, t tennis was spared, but uh, how is that allowed to happen at a school that's so flush? Well, first of all, you have to understand that in, at Stanford, the college athletics is completely separate from the university. If we build a facility, we raise the money with the university's uh, blessing right. for a particular facility improvement or replacement. Uh, our tennis facility, it's a, over the years, a 20-year project. We spent, we raised $20 million, but we did it ourselves, everything we raised. And uh, they said, yeah, go, if you can do it, go do it. Um, uh, the endowment, we have no student fees covering our sports. Uh, everything in athletics is self-sufficient. And all of a sudden, you know, you're paying your football coach, who's a great one, by the way, and teaches all the right values. Six million dollars a year, whatever it is, I can't remember exactly, but it's around that ballpark. Right. Uh, you're you got your staff; they're getting good salaries now. You are putting in a new facility. Uh, all these things cost money, and all of a sudden, you exponentially. Then you have to improve your basketball facility. It's an arms race, and it's not sustainable. And 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 no one else, and no one's, no one's going to bail us out. We can't go to the university and say, "Hey, we need help." So I don't know whether I honestly understand whether the board of trustees told the university president who told our athletic director or the athletic director director in the report, the stuff used to be pretty much above board. Now we don't coaches. We never hear about it till it's too late to do anything, but it's, it's, it's a, it's, you have to realize Stanford's a little bit different because athletics is completely on its own. And right. if the budget there is $80 million, they better take in that $80 million. Problem is John, as you know, I, I've always, when I go out and give a talk, I've always, about the state of college athletics, I've always mentioned that 
what's going to happen? First of all, you get these big 10, 15 year contracts from the broadcast, uh, broad, the stations. Uh, and, and you get that money and you know, for the 10, for the next 10 years, you're going to get uh, $35 million a year in the SEC as an example, right. uh, or 45 and 35 in the big 10, whatever it is, but you get that amount. So, you know, the first thing you do then you go to the bank, take out a loan and spend it all. So you can build more facilities or put more into salaries. Or, so uh, what yeah. happens if we have a recession, I've always said, and, and a real bad recession and the advertisers have pulled back their advertising budgets from the stations. And then the stations have to pull back what they're showing regardless of the contract. And you're counting on this income, but they can't provide the service that, you know, so then what do you do? Well, it happens. COVID is the one that did this. And uh, with this concussion thing, we had a big pending, uh, big pending thing for the DOD and NCAA. And then March, May, we presented it back in Indianapolis in uh, February. And then uh, they were going to take 30 days, reconvene and with a decision. And all of a sudden, March Madness hit, and there goes $700 million from NCAA. So the call I get from John Hainline is, Dick, we got a problem. We don't have any money anymore. We're letting staff go as it is. And every NGB is that way. So everyone's affected by this thing. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Does, uh, does college tennis have any potential as you see it? to generate revenue? I mean, what, what you always hear is, you know, yeah, the, the football team's paying a million dollars to the strength and conditioning coach and LSU has hundreds of people on staff, but it's the football team that's bringing in the money. And you tennis and golf and track and swimming, you guys are just drafting on this. Does tennis have any chance, college tennis, to drive some revenue here? Uh, yes, of course. Uh, yes, it does. And I think it's, uh, you know, it's hard because we play our matches, a lot of them are during the week. Uh, I always try to keep my weekends, at least Sundays free for the kids. so They have a day to themselves to enjoy life, get caught back up with studies, whatever. Uh, but when you play during the week, the kids, the other kids, college kids are active. They're always doing something uh, on their own. They might be intramurals. They might be doing a seminar. There are a lot more afternoon classes. Now, not like, it's not like school is out at 12 o'clock or one o'clock and the kids have nothing to do and they all come out to the match right. and you can't charge your student body much anyway. In fact, their students were free at Stanford for all athletic events. And, uh, and, then, and then you have your, who are you going to have out during the middle of the week? 
retirees. Well, that's not going to bring in a lot of money. Uh, then you have your matches on the weekend, but uh, all the parents, the kids who have kids are going to want to bring them out, but the kids are playing tournaments. So, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a hard bet. You have an evening match at 5 yeah. o'clock, people want to go home, have dinner with their families. But, but there are other ways to do this. We, yeah. we, did, we were a money-making sport at Stanford because we were completely endowed. Our camps brought in a lot of money. The school takes a cut yeah. of that. You yeah. take that rental. We had the Bank of the West tournament, so we had rental from that. Uh, that's a big, that was a big WTA event. Uh, we had our court rentals from the US, USTA for their, for their uh, leagues and stuff like that. And, and we made money. Right. Yeah, I uh, think that's what I'm thinking. Not, not, I don't think anyone's getting rich selling tickets to college tennis, but it, it does seem like there's some other revenue opportunities there, whether it's the, the summer camps or corporate sponsorships or hospitality. Well, and we had, we had all those things, and we had, uh, and they finally cut us out of corporate sponsorships internally, and we couldn't do that anymore, and, and they kind of peck away. And, uh, but we, we, we were, when I left, we were a money-raising sport. You know, not a lot, but probably 20 grand a year or so. All right. Um, in, indulge my, uh, my pet peeve with college tennis. And, uh, you know, Stanford steered clear of this, so uh, you, you are not to be implicated. But you look at some of these rosters, and you look at where the players come from. And I always say, if, if you're the Iowa or the Minnesota or the Indiana athletic director and you've got to make some cuts and you see one of your teams has eight guys from out of the country and nobody from in-state, you're making my job a lot easier when the, the budget acts falls. On the other hand, you know, we're globalists and internationalists and we want to uh, be, be oh, I, I, Yeah, that's a great question. Where, uh, of course. Where, where do you come down on You know, that? it's really interesting because, uh, well, you know, I coached four years at junior college before I came to Stanford, and uh, I, I never had a foreigner at Stanford who I gave a scholarship to, not for any reason, but I was able to get the uh, top Americans, and, and as long as I could do that, I knew the families and everything, it was just a safer bet for me, but I'm, I wasn't above a foreigner. I mean, we had some foreigners on our team who came on their own, and when I was in junior college, we won a couple of state championships with uh, a German player on one, a, a Mexican Davis Cups um, player on the other. And and so I'm not above it. Uh, so everyone thought, well, yeah, <laughs> I wasn't, but I was able to get the top American. So I stuck with that. Uh, that being said, I also served on the advocacy committee for the Intercollegiate Tennis Association for a long period of time. And, and the first thing I would do when before when a school was going to drop a program, uh, division one, two, or three didn't matter, men or women didn't matter, is I go to the roster and I'd call it up online and see how, what percentage of the team was foreign. And if the team had more than two foreigners who appeared to be starting that team, right. in good faith, I did not feel I could write a letter to a state institution whose uh, who's residents are paying taxes so these kids can go to school and good faith advocate for it. If they had a couple of foreigners, okay, but if they had a team of four, four or five foreigners starting, uh, I couldn't do it. And I was on a committee with the understanding I would not write the letter in that circumstance. So I think that's a hard thing. And I think uh, sometimes we cut our own throat doing that. And on the other hand, John, we forget we were all foreign sometime. We all, <laughs> we all, we all forget that we all came from somewhere. Right, right. Uh, we were all immigrants and, and uh, all of us essentially. And, and uh, so we have to be taught of that and we have to appreciate that. And, and, I, in all my years of coaching, I never saw a foreigner, a foreign player abuse the system. I, they were turned out to be solid students, 
They appreciated the opportunity they had. And so many of them stayed in the United States, became citizens, citizens, or our coaches on our call and our coaches of our college teams today. So you can't fault it uh, because we all started that way. But in a way, it's I think it's uh, if our public institu institution in particular and our taxpayer, I think you be, could be cutting your own throat if you were too heavy that way. Um, I want to I want to close. I want I want to ask you ask you a bit about what you're you're up to today. We talked about it a little, but. Um... Again, I, I think you're, you're absolutely right. These, we, we think about head injuries in sports as something that football has to deal with, and uh, we don't realize how common these are across a, a number of sports. H how did you get in? Was this a, a Stanford startup? How did you get involved in this? <laughs> well, first of all, John, I can't sit still. And uh, I'm emeritus at Stanford, but in athletics, if you're emeritus, you don't get a desk. I go into my <laughs> boss, uh, Bernard Muir, I said, Coach, I said, uh, Okay, so on Friday is my last day, middle of January, first paycheck. It's my last day. Uh, uh, where do I put my desk? He says, put your desk? <laughs> he says, we don't give the murder guy's desk or offices. <laughs> I said, oh, okay. <laughs> so I was a little bummed. And a buddy of mine heard about this. He said, I know a place downtown Palo Alto where uh, I have an office space there that a nonprofit's in, and I think they have some room. Well, it turns out the nonprofit, uh, we have an inner city program at Stanford, ironically, I went to School of Education and met this gal who I brought down to the East Palo Alto Tennis Tutoring Program on campus. We held it, hold it, and uh, I wanted her to be the faculty advisor so that our students could get some get some academic credit for the tutoring, the 200, 150, 200 of them who tutor in this program. Right. And uh, in the meantime, we're walking past the athletic department and she starts asking, you doing the football coach? I said, yeah, of course. And she said, well, can you get me in to meet him? Sure. So she told me why, and I ended up working for her or with her rather than vice versa. <laughs> and uh, and I've just loved it. I, I, it. To me, it's a different different area. They were, she spent, she was, uh, her doctoral education, her doctoral th dissertation was on global and global health on HIV education. And she formed a nonprofit when she got her doctorate and out of Stanford, formed a nonprofit called Teach AIDS. And she actually herself and her volunteer crew instigated effective AIDS education in 82 countries throughout the world. And that was going well. And so seven years later, she started looking into something else to do. And she was looking at three topics. She was looking at sexual harassment. That was just before Me Too had started, okay. Me Too movement. She looked at cybersecurity. And her husband is an expert in that, one of the world experts, so that's a conflict of interest. And she looked at concussions, not knowing a damn thing about athletics any more than she did about HIV. And so, so I'm the athletic expert in the group, and, and uh, it's been fascinating. We, we, don't, uh, we take the research, uh, we, we do some studies ourselves, we take the research, uh, and we produce concussion education. And, and our first, uh, actually John Hainline of the Inspire has been a tremendous supporter of ours and introduced us to a lot of key people. We work really closely with youth football, uh, most of youth football, Pop Warner, uh, American Youth Football, USA Football, use our programs to for their athletes. They all have, uh, USA Football is a great certification program for their coaches as well. Uh, we also, uh, USOPC, their education director, Chris Snyder, heard about it. He we work very closely with him. We have hockey now, uh, soccer, gymnastics, baseball, wrestling. We have 19 NGBs as, as partners now. And uh, we've done a couple of other productions. Our first one was a video. It actually starred Bryce Love, our uh, Heisman Trophy runner from Stanford, as a key yeah. person. And we start off, you're actually in the game with a, a, a 
camera and your headset. So you feel a shock, you feel a hit. Uh, we show three or four plays in succession and there's a collision and then you pick, uh, do I stay in a game or do I leave the game? So it's an educational video that narrated by Bryce from then on. And, uh, uh, and then we, uh, uh, we have one on, on bicycle, which is the biggest cause. It's on, it helps you teach the fragility, understand the fragility and complexity of the brain. Uh, it's a fly through the human brain from a brain lab at Stanford uh, and two-time World Cup uh, mountain bike champion Kate Courtney is our narrator of that. Uh, we're just finishing Story Wall with 650 stories from veterans, from okay. parents who've had to deal with kids who concussed and kids, uh, athletes and non-athletes, about half, half high school, half college age, who tell their concussion stories in six parts. So we're now putting that, uh, we're starting to load those on YouTube and putting it online in our uh, website where you can tune in as a doc or whoever with some great docs with their specialty symptoms talking about it. And then we're about ready in January to start working on the storyboard for our multi-sport version for the USOPC sports. They can't get you to slow down, can they? <laughs> um, I don't know what the hell I'd do, John. I go crazy. Well, I'm having a time in my life, so you got to stop writing about the problems of concussion in football. Realizing that out of uh, up to three million concussions a year in new sports and activities, uh, formal activities, that uh, only three hundred thousand of those are football. And uh, when the artistic swimming, you synchronized swimming, is the first group in the USOPC that comes to us asking about a partnership. Uh, you know, you start to realize, hey, wait a minute, this is a lot beyond that. And, and cheering is one of the biggest causes of concussion. Yeah, yeah, it's, exactly. it's amazing. Yeah. And so it's really, it's, it's, it's a universal problem. And hopefully, hopefully we can do some good in having people recognize what it is and having them work together with their teammates to take each other out of the game so they don't get sustain, sustain other injuries, which is a big, big problem. And, and it's not, you know, we want to save the sport. We want to make it safer. And, and uh, we have great bandwidth and great support in doing such. So that's where we are. I love, uh, I, I like that we only need one hand to uh, come up with examples in tennis. But uh, no, this is great. Well, I'm, uh, I'm off to another Zoom meeting and, and you probably are too. This is, uh, this is how we roll these days. Well, um, listen, I, yeah, I, I, that's great. Hey, it's wonderful to talk with you. And, no, likewise, uh, likewise. I'll send you the release of some way you go on when we get our next thing done on this concussion. You might take get a kick out of it. Everything you read about is bad and it's all football and it's so much more than that. And, and there's a lot of good things being done by a lot of people. So the education part of it is a little bit sparse right now. It's really a good void to fill there. Keep up the great work, John. I love, I love the variety of what you do. It's not dull, well, is it? I, I appreciate that. It was great to do this and uh, we'll, we'll be in touch. You take care of yourself and uh, maybe, maybe we'll be face to face next time. I would hope so. We got You don't like wine, do you? I, uh, I, I like wine as much as anyone, absolutely. <laughs> well, we got a date then, my friend. You got it. <laughs> it was, uh, Keep up the great work and wonderful talk to you with you. You as well. Thanks, Coach. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. All right, thanks to uh, Dick Gould. Thanks to Coach Gould for talking to us from near the Stanford campus. We stay in the state of California for our next guest. We go to San Diego where Brandon Nakashima is uh, talking to us from his childhood bedroom. 
which uh, is a bit of a change of pace because he was uh, one of the great breakthrough players for the ATP this year, uh, American teenager, now up to 166. He started at 371. He just won a challenger in Orlando, um, took a set off of uh, Sasha Zverev at the U.S. Open, as, as you may recall, one of the real bright prospects. Just three, is that right? Three, four, four teenagers in the top 200, and uh, Brandon Nakashima is the youngest American. So... Um, here he is. Good conversation. We talk a bit about what this strange year was like for a young player on the rise. We talk a bit about what's next. At 166, he will likely have to qualify for the Australian Open. That does not mean going to Australia. That likely means going to, I was told, Dubai, but a, a location offshore. And then the qualifying winners and maybe a few lucky losers will then be transported uh, on a chartered flight to Melbourne to begin their quarantine. Uh, strange year, strange times, but he uh, is handling it with uh, great equanimity. Here's uh, Brandon Nakashima. How you doing? Where are you? Uh, good, good. I'm in uh, San Diego right now. Um, just, just training here for the next month. You, uh, you're, you're home in your, your boyhood bedroom, I'm guessing? Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm here in, uh, in my house where I grew up and um, it's nice to sleep in my own bed. What I, mean, I don't we, we we can start there. What's what's that like? You uh, you go to college for a year, you turn pro, and um, you you probably did not expect at the beginning of the year that uh, come December, you'd you'd be back home. What's uh, how, how have you experienced this year? Uh, yeah, it, it's been a great year for me. I think um, yeah, starting off the year um, with with some good results, winning my my first ATP match uh, in Delray, and then. Um, following it up with a, a good run in the Indian Wells Challenger leading up to, to getting a wild card into the, to the Masters 1000 there. And then, and then um, all of a sudden, all the tournaments stopped and everything, and um, all the players, we didn't really know when uh, the, the tour was going to resume. So uh, I kind of just took that really as an opportunity to, to help improve my game on the, the practice court. <laughs> came back home and, and uh, just started training here every day, started to uh, just keep trying to keep improve my game. And, and, um, and then eventually when the, when the tournaments came back up in, in August, uh, I'm sure as a lot of players were, we were all really eager to play and really looking forward to going back out there and competing. And then, um, and then to, to end the, to end the year with my, my first challenger title was, uh, was really good for my confidence. Definitely. Helped, helped my ranking and um, yeah, it gave me a lot of confidence going into the the new year. What what extent um, to what extent did did COVID impact your decision to uh, to leave college and go pro? Um, not too much, I would say. Uh, I I made the decision to uh, to turn professional at the end of last year, so so the whole beginning of this year and the whole summer, I was already professional so you're you're at indian wells you're a southern california kid you're into the main draw i mean this is you know one of these dream about moments yeah take us back to march i mean what, what was it like when you when you found out that uh, actually there wasn't going to be an indian wells 2020 um well it was i was actually playing the the challenger there the week before and uh i think after the, the my quarterfinal match i won there um I remember my, my agent calling me and, and telling me that uh, I got a wild card into the main draw for the Masters 1000 the following week, which was uh, was super cool to hear. I was, I was super excited about. And then, 
And then after I lost in uh, the semis the next day, uh, we were we were planning to stay there, train there for a few days before the the Masters 1000 started. And then and then all of a sudden, I remember I remember a couple of people texting me saying that it was canceled, and and I I, I wanted to not I didn't want to believe them, but um, but then I saw um, uh, like the announcement on on their uh, main website that uh, it was canceled. So definitely uh, a little disappointing, but um, un- understandable given the given the circumstances. Um, so, so you're right now you're you're 166, which is uh, you know a, a great ranking for a teenager, and you've you've come a long way in a short time. But you're in that zone where you're not necessarily sure about cutoffs and, and qualifying. Mm-hmm. How are you keeping updated on, on this schedule that seems to be in a, in a constant state of flux? How, how are you getting your information and, and what are your plans for the first 90 days of uh, 2021? Um, well, well, right now the, the plan is to uh, play the Australian Open qualifying. Um, still not sure if they're going to they're gonna have it or not. But uh, I think as most players are, they're, they're just focusing on – on training right now during the preseason, trying to improve their game, and um, I think uh, whenever the, t- the tournaments the tournaments will start back up again next year, I think everybody will be uh, will be eager to play and um, be uh, ready to compete again. Where, where are you getting your information? How are you staying on top of all these these twists and turns? Uh, I, I'm mostly just from emails from the ATP, emails and texts, pretty much. Gotcha. Are you, uh, I mean, it's, you know, we, we should timestamp this. It's, it's Wednesday and this could change. I mean, right now it looks like Australian Open qualifying won't be held in Australia. Are you, uh, are you prepared to go to wh- wherever it is? It might, might be Dubai. It might, um, it, it, you know, a number of rumors. Are, are you prepared to go to a different country to try and qualify for, uh, for Melbourne? Yeah, I, I'm definitely, uh, definitely ready to, to go out there and, and compete uh, and to qualify wherever it's going to be. Uh, and and when it's going to be, I think I think either any of those places that they decide to to play it will will be cool and uh, just overall a, a good experience for me to to play the qualities. Um, t- tell me a little bit about your background. What, what do you, what do your folks do, and how do you, how do you end up hitting a ball over a net for a living? Uh, so both my parents are uh, pharmacists. Uh, they both my dad works in the hospital. My mom works in a, a clinic, but. Um, but uh, it's more on my mom's side of the family that that play tennis, not not professional or anything, just just college, high school. But it was more uh, her her dad, so my grandpa, who uh, who first introduced tennis to me when I was about three, four years old. When uh, he just took me out to like a public park and just started feeding me balls, and then and then uh, and then as I grew up, started taking some lessons and, and playing some tournaments. And then probably when I was about uh, 15, 16, that, uh, that I knew that I wanted to make a living out of it and uh, turn professional one day. You grow up in the same state as uh, Stanford, USC, UCLA, yeah. Pepperdine. How'd you end up at uh, University of Virginia? Uh, well, yeah, growing up, I, I, was always, I was always thinking most of the California schools to go to, but... Um, when when I was going through the recruiting process, the the Virginia coach called me and uh, was t- was talking uh, to me a lot, talking to my parents a lot, and then I uh, I just took a visit out there, a recruiting visit, and um, liked the liked the school, liked all the guys on the team, and, and liked the coach. So 
it was definitely a, a really cool experience for me. It seems like college tennis players sort of end up in three buckets. The uh, I'm, I'm here for a year and I'm, I'm one and done or, or two yeah. and done sometimes. Uh, I'm determined to stay four years or we'll, we'll see how it goes. Uh, where, where'd you find yourself? Um, well, well, going, well, when I was growing up, I always wanted to go to college uh, before I turned professional, whether it was one year, two years, or four years. But, uh, but I decided to go a semester early and uh, start in, the, in January in the, in the spring, straight into the season. And, um, and after the season, uh, I took the fall off, played a bunch of those, a uh, bunch of challengers, did well in those, and then um, ultimately just decided at the end of the end of the year to uh, turn, turn pro. In t- tell me if I'm wrong. You're you you can always go back to school if you want to, right? Yes. So you have the option of going and getting your degree, right? Which I, I imagine uh, you know might might take some pressure off as you go about this uh, this this professional life. A little bit, yeah. It definitely it definitely is nice to to have something to uh, to fall back on. Uh, whenever I'm done with playing tennis. You recommend college tennis? Yes, I, I definitely do for, uh, for juniors growing up to, uh, to experience college and um, to, to play in the, whatever school they want. But, but uh, I think whether it's for one year, two years, or all four years, I think it, it'll be a good experience for them leading up to the pros. There's, there seems to be a, a fair amount of chatter about, you know, a lot of these College tennis is in a bit of a, a a bit of a crisis, and some programs are being cut, especially on the men's side. What would you tell athletic directors? I mean, what what are the decision makers not understanding about college tennis that um, that you'd want to convey to them? Um, I think I think it's just about um, yeah, like you said, a lot of college programs have have been cut, mostly like the lower lower level schools, but but still, I think. Um, I like to see it as, as all college sports as, as being equal. I know, I know it's more of the college football and basketball that, that bring more money to, to the school and, and get more attention. But I like to see all the student athletes as, 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 as all the same. They all, they all play sport. They all represent the program. And uh, it's, it's definitely, it's definitely sad knowing that you're, you're going to play college tennis and then, and then having your, uh, the program cut. Due, uh, due to the COVID, but, uh, but I think uh, for all the athletic directors, I think they should, uh, they should try to treat all the programs the same. Do, do I have my math right? Were you, were you in Charlottesville when UVA won the NCAA title? Yes, I was. <laughs> well, what do you remember about that? What was that like? Um, oh man, that was, that was a cool experience. I mean, I was only there for one year, and and then uh, that that was the the year that they they won the national championship. So that uh, that season was uh, really cool. We we got to watch a lot of the games on TV, um, and then that the championship uh, match, we did uh, a bunch of the guys on the team. We just all watched it at uh, one of the houses there, and then um, afterwards, I mean, it was it was total total chaos on the streets a lot of partying that night but uh but it was really cool yeah you don't get that uh you don't get that playing challengers um yeah no what's the um and, and i ask you this just because this was such a strange year for for fans what, what's the biggest crowd you've ever played in front of 
Um, I'd say probably uh, actually a, f- a few years ago, I um, I got a wild card into the Indian Wells 1000 qualifying when I was maybe 16 or 17. It was kind of a last minute. It opened up and um, I ended up playing the number one seed in the qualifying first round on, on the second stadium. And, and when I, I remember when I was walking out there, it was, uh, I was, I was, I was shocked to see how many how many people were there watching, but but it was it was cool. I, I ask you that because um, you know I, I think if you ask most fans, casual fans, the they'll, they'll, first thing they probably remember is your your match at the U.S. Open against Zverev, which mm-hmm. in any other year would be you know it's probably a night match. It's yeah, young American kid who just spent a year at UVA against you know top top ten player who'd go on to make the final. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you remember about that day, and what what was it like playing what on paper is you know, a, a career-defining match, at least early in your career, but yeah, mm-hmm. no, no fans. Yeah, it was uh, it was definitely tough going uh, going through all the protocols, uh, the whole tournament, and um, having no fans there to watch. But uh, but overall, I, th- I thought it was a great experience for me, winning winning that first round, and then and then playing Zverev, um, who who ended up uh, making the final uh, in the second round, having having a close match with him. So I think it definitely gave me a lot of confidence knowing that, uh, that I, could, I could play with all the top players. And uh, it's just a matter of keep working hard, keep, keep working on my game. And uh, I think uh, good things will happen in the future. Yeah, I don't know if you saw some of his remarks afterwards. He was very, very complimentary of your backhand. Mm-hmm. He said it was a backhanded compliment. He said the, for, for an American, you had a great backhand. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he also... Yeah, you know, I, th- I think he likened you to sort of a, a Djokovic style of, of game. Do you uh you you accept those compliments? I mean, does that does that, <laughs> does that sound accurate to you? Yeah, I, I've I've definitely heard that from a lot of people that uh like my game style is supposed similar to Djokovic. Uh, my my backhand is definitely uh definitely my stronger side, but uh but yeah, I, I'm still trying to improve through that and and kind of all aspects of my game, but uh, it's still. It's still really cool uh, getting that compliment um, from uh, from a top level player. You you said something after the match that a lot of players say in in your position as they try to transition to the pros. You know, f- physically you you've got to uh, make some adjustments and get bigger. What what does that actually mean? I mean, is is that muscle mass? Is that core strength and abs? Is that legs? When when players talk about how they have to get bigger, what does that mean specifically? Um, well, I think it's a combination of everything. Um, uh, before, before this, this year, I, um, I never really had like a, a solid, solid fitness schedule. I mean, um, I, I was doing fitness maybe t- two or three times a week, but, uh, in this preseason, uh, um, um, we, we got a good fitness coach here with me. So we're, we're working every day really hard. And, uh, I think it's just, just, Building up some more muscle, like you said, um, getting quicker on the court, and um, just just overall getting more physical out there. What's your coaching situation these days? Uh, well, I'm working with uh, uh, Dusan Vemic, and uh, uh, my fitness coach is uh, Dejan Vojinovic. You got that? You hit that? <laughs> um, yeah. You you were with uh, you were with COVID skeptic. And former Wimbledon champion uh, Pat Cash, 
during the U.S. Open. You you just made this switch this fall, obviously. Uh, yeah. So I was actually with him the since the beginning of this year. Uh, during all the during all the tournaments, uh, when all the tournaments were were canceled, uh, we were actually training hard together uh, here in San Diego. He would come uh, for four or five weeks, a couple times, and then. Um, he, uh, we were, they were both there at the, the U.S. Open, and then um, he was with me uh, in Europe for, for a couple of weeks. So, uh, it was, and then the, the contract expired uh, at the end of this year. But, uh, but it was overall a really good experience uh, learning from Pat. Uh, he, he was great both on and off the court, and uh, really, really thankful to, uh, to have gotten to know him and, and wish him all the best in the future. In in San Diego, you you can find hitting partners pretty easily. They're they're guys. Yeah, there, there's usually a couple of good players. Um, sometimes uh, Marcus Giron is here. I think uh, Chris Eubanks said he'll he'll do a few weeks out here uh, in a couple of weeks. So, uh, so there's a, there's some good players to hit with. So as uh, as just December inches to a close, uh, I, I don't know how how do you take the measure of this this crazy year you've been through. Um, yeah, I, I think it was just overall a great experience, um, taking all the opportunities to, to try and get better when, uh, when there was no tournaments. And then, and then once I was playing tournaments to, to try to, try to maximize the opportunities and, um, winning that, winning that last, last tournament of the year, uh, and that challenger in Orlando, uh, it was definitely a big confidence booster and, uh, good to, to end the year on a high note. So the, the cliche exchange goes like this. The, the, the questioner says, you know, do you have a rankings goal for the next year? And the player says, no, I just want to keep getting better in all aspects of the game. And I don't really look at the numbers, but um, let's, let's depart from that. And uh, look, we look forward to 2021. What, um, I, don't, I don't want to say what are the goals, but what, what are you looking for? What are your expectations? Um, well, I'm, I'm trying to, uh, I think, um, I'm just trying to to improve my game, like you said, um, and uh, keep developing. I think I would like to uh, to try to do well at all the Grand Slams, uh, try to try to win a try to win an ATP event, and uh, get that get that ranking high enough to uh, to get into the main draw of all the Slams. So you're you're aware that you're uh, you're, you're not that far off from you know a couple mm-hmm. wins here and there, and you won't have to qualify. You're I'm not the first person that's telling you that. I hope. Uh-huh. Yeah, I've heard that from quite a few people. Um, you play any doubles? Uh, yeah, I did um, a lot in college and uh, try to play uh, some tournaments uh, here and there. And for the first first ninety days of uh, of twenty twenty one, how how do you prepare? Just the, every every day brings a new rumor, and the the calendar is very much in flux and travel and yeah. jet lag and how are you dealing with it, all this chaos uh well i'm trying not to think about it too much um just just trying to just trying to get a good uh preseason training in um and then whenever the uh the announcement comes out when I, when anything is final uh I'll, I'll be ready to uh to go wherever and uh compete all right i hope we uh ho- hope we see you in action in uh in melbourne and uh hope hope Qualifying goes well and 2021 goes well. It sounds like you have a good perspective on things. So uh, pleasure talking and good, good luck out there. All right. Nice talking to you too.
right. thank you thanks man thanks brandon thank you. take care Okay, thanks to Brandon, thanks to Coach Gould, thanks as always to Jamie for her behind-the-scenes handiwork. Jamie was very busy this week doing a great job uh, rolling out Sports Illustrated Sports Person of the Year. Naomi Osaka was among the honorees, and I would point out our friend Martina Navratilova wrote a uh, glowing accompanying piece that uh, I encourage you to read. We'll post it in the show notes. Um, so thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Keep the guest suggestions coming. Um we have uh, we, we have a good one for for next week uh, that we'll reveal in a few days. But um, keep listening, keep subscribing, leave a review, iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcast. We'll do it again in seven days. Have a good week, everyone.